There's a relatively common technique used in game shows. It's used to increase tension and to give the viewer a sense of involvement with the show. They have one prize that they have already won, but they're presented with a choice. Will they keep what they have, or will they risk it all to get something more? I think we've all sat and considered what we would do if we were offered these options. Would you stay put and walk away with $100,000? Or do you want to take a chance and keep on trying to answer questions because you want to be a millionaire? You like to think that the case that you would choose on deal or no deal would cause the banker to give you that bigger offer or on the price is right. You want to believe that you would have the guts to give up that luxurious vacation because you want to try for the car that you just want to be able to drive home. Well, sitting in my chair with my feet up, I'm pretty gutsy. I really am. I'd go for the million, I'd try for a bigger deal, or I'd surrender the vacation for a chance at the car. But I've always wondered how, how risky I would be with the bright lights on, with a crowd yelling while the cameras are recording. How much would I believe in myself when it mattered? How, how you measure the risks versus the rewards is an entirely different endeavor when, you, when you're no longer on the couch and you actually have something to lose. And we find ourselves immersed once again in the story of Abram. Again, today, we're, we're going to see that this is a story of faith, a story where Abram trusts in God and the promise that is before him instead of the riches that are offered to him by the world. And we see this in an encounter with someone that we heard about before. When we were still in the book of Hebrews a few weeks ago, I mentioned that in a few weeks when we came back and got to Genesis to look at the life of Abram, that we would see this guy. We would see his story because Hebrews was talking about it. And then when we return back to Hebrews after we're done with Abraham, we're going to see this character again, Melchizedek. And we just read the entirety of his appearance in the book of Genesis. That's it. He's a major character in how the theology of the book of Hebrews is spelled out, but what we read today is all that we know about him. Hebrews talks about him. Psalm 110 lets us know that, that this Melchizedek points to something greater. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that as we dig into this relatively short passage, that this is the truth that we're meant to see. It's about faith. It's about trusting in Jesus. So as we come to the text today, we're going to break the passage down into just two points to help us understand today. And the first thing that we're going to see is that Abram receives a blessing. Melchizedek shows up pretty much out of nowhere, and he gives Abram a blessing. Last week, last week we saw that Abram has established himself as a bit of a force because he went in and he rescued Lot from that region near Sodom, and now we're seeing the aftermath of it. A, a priest king comes and offers a blessing over the life of Abram. And then secondly, we're going to see that Abram rejects the spoils of the world because Melchizedek isn't the only king who comes to this little gathering in a valley. 
the king of Sodom, offers Abram great wealth, something that most of us wouldn't be able to pass up on. But instead of taking all of this and taking over the promised land by his own power, Abram is going to trust in the promise of God. He's going to wait for what God has told him is going to come to pass. Now this is, this is such a great passage, and we're, we're blessed to have the first verse in it remind us of what we looked at last week. It says here that Abram has these guys coming to visit him, and Abram had rescued his nephew Lot after a pretty significant skirmish of area kings. And these kings had put a lot of people under the oppression of their rule. But Abram took his trained men and went in and rescued them. And as this section begins, we're we're feeling that this has raised the status of Abram in the area. He has become a king of sorts himself. He has significant possessions, he has livestock, and scores upon scores of people who not only travel with him and work for him, But clearly, as seen in their battle, these trained men can win victory for him. Abram is a significant person in this area now. And because of who he's meeting with, we see that he's seen as sort of a king here. Abram is rising in influence. He's rising in power, so much so that the king of Sodom wants to meet with him in the king's valley and give him the spoils that came from rescuing their area because this was a major attack. But before we get to the king of Sodom offering these spoils, we have an interesting character show up in this Melchizedek that we have heard so much about. Right off the bat, the first thing we notice about this king is his name. Now, it's strange to us. I doubt any of the young couples here today are taking notes. Hmm, Melchizedek, let's name our firstborn male that. That's not... That's not a name we would use. But this name means something. In Hebrew, Melech means king. And Sedek means righteousness. So, so this king's name literally is king of righteousness. And you can see the significance of his meeting up with Abram just by the significance of his name. Here comes a king, a king of righteousness. But we also learn something else important about Melchizedek that helps us to understand the significance of this story. Look at where he is king. Salem. Now, you don't know where Salem is in Israel because it's not called that anymore. It's now Jerusalem. He's from the west. He's from what will become Jerusalem. And now, They're at a meetup in the Valley of Kings, and we've already talked about who else is there, but it's also important. It's the king of Sodom. So a king from the west and a king from the east. And we saw last week that anytime someone goes east in the book of Genesis, it's not good. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, which direction did they go? They went east. When Cain was exiled for murdering his brother, which direction did he go? He went further east. The idea in Genesis is that when we go east, we go further and further and further away from the presence of God. You get the idea of what's happening here, what's being set up here in this little meeting in the Valley of the Kings. We have a contrast today. 
between the righteous and the unrighteous. Melchizedek from Salem and the king of Sodom. The setup that we're meant to feel here is that Abram is being presented with a choice. Who will he side with? Righteousness or evil? Where will he place his trust? With the promise of God? With the alluring things that the world has to offer? But before we get to that important decision, there's something else important we need to see about this Melchizedek guy that increases our understanding of this contrast that's happening in this text. He is a priest, a priest of the Most High God. And we don't know anything We don't know anything about this guy other than his name and where he's from. But yet he is a priest king of God Most High. He doesn't show up anywhere in any of these genealogies. As I always say when we get to those parts of Scripture, those are the parts you should read before you go to bed to guarantee a good night's sleep, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's not exactly enthralling reading. But it's important reading because it shows us the line to Jesus. It shows us who the righteous ones are in Genesis. But instead, Melchizedek isn't in any of those genealogies. We haven't seen anything here in Genesis yet to give us an indication that anyone but the covenant people of God in these genealogies are the ones who are righteous. But yet we have a king of righteousness show up out of nowhere without any genealogies. That's important. It's an important quick aside for us to understand because you and I, by birth, we aren't in any biblical genealogies, right? Our ethnicity isn't going to get us into the kingdom of God. It's not going to make us righteous because we're in a certain line. But here we are. We are the covenant people of God. We're his people. Even though we're not in the genealogies, we're his people. Why? Because he has brought us into the family by grace through faith. Well, ultimately, we will see that Melchizedek points us to Jesus. We we also see that he is showing us something about us, about our relationship to God. It's pointing to the truth that, that being a faithful child of God does not require a particular bloodline or ethnicity. But instead, it requires and relies upon faith and the grace of God. And we see that a faith that trusts in God is not only shown to us in Melchizedek, that outsider, but also in Abram. Abram, the the child of the promise, the covenant, the one who's inside the covenant, he is also going to trust God, and it's on full display for us here today. But before we look at the blessing that Abram is going to receive, we we need to look at what Melchizedek has brought to the meeting. He brings bread. He brings wine. And this is to show us that this is a full celebratory meal. This meeting is more than just a little get-together. It's a celebration. It's a full meal. They're gathered together to not only discuss the spoils resulting from the victory that Abram had over King Kelad, I shouldn't have put this in my notes. It's too hard to say. Ketalamer, there it is. But it's also a celebration of what happened. 
And at this celebration, Melchizedek blesses Abram. He knows that Abram serves God Most High. And this is not a throwaway term for God, God Most High. We, I don't know that we've seen it in Genesis yet. Why is he using this term? It's used here to show us that Abram doesn't serve any of the false gods. Instead, he is a servant of the one who is above all. The God who is the Lord of heaven and earth, while the others worship their false, false gods in vain, Abram is a servant of the one true God. He's a servant of God most high. And Melchizedek knows this, and he understands that Abram didn't win this victory over these evil kings of the east on his own. Instead, it was God who delivered his enemies into his hands. And so how did Abram respond? Instead of reveling in the spoils of his victory and keeping it for himself, he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Abram gets it. He understands that everything he has is a blessing from Almighty God. He agrees with the blessing that we see here that he has received from this priest king, Melchizedek. He receives the blessing and in response gives away a tenth of everything he has. And notice he didn't give it away in order to receive the blessing. He didn't give a tenth to the priest king before he went out to battle. He didn't go find, out, find Melchizedek and say, hey, I'm going to battle, I need God's help. If I give you a tenth of everything, will God help me? That's not what he's saying. He's doing it afterwards because he knows. He knows that God has blessed him, that God gave him the victory. And so this giving to God Giving to Melchizedek is being given as a response. And the same is to be true in our lives. We don't, we don't give in hopes that God will bless us. We give because we've already been blessed by God. He has given us the victory in, in our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we respond by giving of our time and our possessions not to earn points with God, but because we're doing so in humble gratitude for the gift of the salvation that he's bestowed on us. But as we move on to our second point, we're going to see that the receiving of this blessing isn't the only thing that Abram does. He also rejects the spoils that the world has to offer. With everything going on, the king of Sodom must have felt left out. And so he interjects his offer into this gathering of kings. His negotiation is he wants the people, but Abram can have the goods. This seems like an offer that you can't refuse, right? Instead of having to deal with all the issues that arise from having people under your charge, you just get all the stuff. No drama there, just the stuff. The gold, the livestock, and all the other material things are yours. What a great offer. How could he refuse? But what does Abram do? He rejects it all. He doesn't take a thing. Why? Because he has lifted his hand to the Lord, God Most High. He has put his trust in him, not in the king from the east. The allure of the world, making him rich and famous and powerful, is sitting right there in front of him. It's there for the taking. He doesn't have to give the king of Sodom a thing. He's won, he's won the battle. 
He doesn't have to give the king of Sodom anything. He rescued him. Abram rescued the king. But Abram knows who he serves. And it isn't the evil king of Sodom from the east. He serves God most high. And so he won't take a thread or even a sandal strap. In other words, he's not taking a thing. Not a penny is coming from from them other than what is rightly due for the men who helped with the battle. Instead, Abram is trusting in God. He trusts that not only will he care for him, but that God will fulfill the promise that was made. And so we have to do what we've been doing here in the story of Abram. I have to remind you what hasn't happened yet. What hasn't happened yet in the life of Abram? He's risen to the point of being considered a king. That's great. He has all kinds of possessions. That's good too. He's rich. He's powerful. But he doesn't have an heir. He doesn't have the child. He doesn't have that promise. Abram's been told that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But if he dies there today, there is no child for that promise to go on. And we know that ultimately that promise is about Jesus Christ. He's the He's the ancestor. He's the one that the the line to the Messiah, the one who crushed the head of the serpent, will go to. And that promise of a child has still not been fulfilled. Sarai is still barren, and they're both still very old. I'm guessing if you or I, if, if we would have had the offers of the world that were presented to him, we would have jumped at it. I'm not gonna have a child So I might as well grab all the stuff and all the power that I can in this life because that's going to be my legacy. That's going to be my legacy. So I'm going to create my own legacy. Forget God. People will remember Abram. They'll remember me as the greatest man in my area. I'll be a king. I won't have children to live in the promised land. So instead of waiting for God to give me the promised land, I'm going to take these people and I'm going to take it for myself. That's how humans would do it, right? Yeah, I really think that's where most of us would end up. But not Abram. Abram is trusting in the promise. He is choosing righteousness, not evil. He is believing God. Abram has faith. And that's the message for us here in Genesis. Abram has faith and he believes God. Yes, we see issues of of unbelief and a lack of faith in Abram. We see that in Genesis. But ultimately, we're we're meant to see that at the end of the day, Abram believes God. He trusts in the promise. He looked to the promise that was far off instead of falling for the allure and the seduction of the world. And so this is an amazing story of faith by Abram. And it's important that we take this from being a really interesting story and an interesting, really interesting piece of history, we take it from that and apply it to our lives. Today I want us to walk away with one specific point of application. We look at Abram and we see the way that he trusts God and rejects the seductions of the world. That takes faith. That takes faith. We trust in the salvation that God has given to us, 
And like Abram, we're called to respond in gratitude, in sacrifice, in service. The gospel that we have been given, the faith to believe, is unbelievably good news. Because the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin has been paid. And we've been forgiven in Christ. And because of this, we have the sure and certain promise of eternal life. Yet we often end up trying to do it on our own. We don't trust God as we ought. We try to take things into our own hands. We so easily rest on ourselves. And I want to challenge us this week to take a step out in faith. Assess where, where you would normally try to take something into your own hands and strive to live in faith instead. Now this past week, I had, I had lunch with a friend of mine from high school, one of my oldest and dearest friends. I remember when we met, it was in the Sunday school hallway at Second Reformed Church in Lenox. He and my other friend Michael were chasing girls. Um, that's not why we became friends, just for the record. Um, it had been a few years since we sat down and, and eaten together. Um, so we, we text occasionally, but not about anything too important. So we spent some time catching up while we were eating, and, and then we did our usual thing of talking about stuff that only nerds talk about. That's just what we do. That's who Brad and I are. At one point, we were talking about computer processors, and I mentioned that 10 or so years ago, when chipmaker AMD had a very low stock price, I knew they would make a comeback, and I knew I should have bought a bunch of their stock. At one point, it was like under $2. It was ridiculously low. And so while we were talking about this, doing our nerd talk thing, I decided to pull out my phone and checked. On Friday, it was at $84. Boy, it was great to feel smart. I knew that they'd make this comeback. I knew this company would rebound. But did I do anything about it? The answer is no. I had all the knowledge I needed. I saw it coming, but I didn't do anything about it. And you understand my point. We've been given a great gift, faith. God has granted us salvation, and from that flows peace and joy and hope. But we can't just sit on it and intellectually know we're right about it. What this looks like for, for each of us is, is going to be different. What it means to step out in faith is going to be different for each one of us. But it's my hope that we'll remember the truth of the gospel this week. And it will motivate us to step out in faith and trust God, to believe him and trust that he is with us, that he blesses us, and that we have the ultimate blessing in salvation in Christ. We see in the story from the life of Abram that the blessings of God are far greater than the allure of the world. Abram trusted in the promise of God and received the blessing. He looked not at what he could acquire in the moment, but instead he trusted in the promise that was far off, that he couldn't see. He even believed that in his old age he would have a child a child that was a child of the promise, that would lead to the Messiah. He had faith in what he couldn't see. So may we, as a people of God, trust in the promise of salvation, just as Abram did. And I've got good news for you. For us, 
It is not far off. It's a reality. The salvation that Abram looked to, to a further city, the book of Hebrew tell, Hebrews tells us, was far off. But for us, we have experienced the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ. God is not far off for us. We live in the reality of salvation. We have the word that is near to us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit that couldn't get any nearer to us at all because it indwells us and it sanctifies us and it comforts us. And so while Abram trusted in the promise that was far off, may we trust by faith in the promise that is near to us. May we be a people who trusts God by faith and shares that good news so that others may hear and believe and trust in the blessing that you and I have from God Most High. Amen.